Lord, in the same way that your people were struck by the hearing of your voice, speaking the Ten Commandments given to your people to help them and to guide them and to lead them, would we also be struck in the same way uh, that we hear your words spoken to us in the Bible and in the Ten Commandments? Help us to view and see the Ten Commandments as commandments based on love, love for you and love for others. Would you help and uh, empower us to desire to obey you, to obey you because we're loved already. We've been made your sons and daughters in Christ, those who are Christians. And and what a gift that that is. And may we obey you out of great love for you. Uh, Thank you for the steadfast, steady, ongoing, enduring, never-ending love that you've demonstrated to us through your son, Jesus, most beautifully in his life lived for us, his death died for us on the cross, and his resurrection I pray that we would see just how much you love us, that your love for us will never end, and that is seen in through Christ. Lord, today I pray that we would bring understanding to our minds and our hearts about the first three of the Big Ten Commandments, and I pray that everything I would say would be for you and your glory alone. I need your help, your strength, and your anointing in this moment, Holy Spirit, and I ask you for that. In Christ's name, amen. For a second there, I thought it was the opening for the Office TV show. It was like, wait a minute, I've heard that before. So at this time, I'll invite Edgar to read today's scripture. Is Edgar in? There he is. Look at that. He's all ready to go. So thank you, Edgar. I'm reading from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 up to 7. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Thank you very much, Edgar. We're continuing our new uh, sermon series currently called Show Me What the Bible Says About. Show Me What the Bible Says About Various Things. And the series, as you might know, is loosely based upon some of the New City Catechism material that it's all about teaching, clarifying some of the core main beliefs and doctrines that the Bible has using question and answer format in catechism style. Anyone here have a catechism background? Maybe you're catechized but by whatever church tradition that you came from, you will be familiar with that sort of format. And so there are 52 question and answers, and this is a great free tool that you can use uh, for parents discipling your kids in the basics of Christianity or even just discipling yourself. More and more I encounter Christians who have been doing the church thing for a lot of years and they're not really solid on sort of the core doctrines of the Bible. And this is a great tool that you can use to refresh yourself 
uh, on those things. It is a free, it, uh, by the way, they're not paying me to say this. It's just, I'm just trying to help you out, help you learn more of the ways of Christ and Scripture. It's a, it's a free app at the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store. You can get this on your phone and you can check it out. Lots of great material there. I believe that about four or five of those 52 catechism questions have to do with what we're talking about over the next three Sundays, and that is the Ten Commandments, known as the Big Ten. The sermon title for today is simply the Ten Commandments 1 through 3, and that's what we're looking at. And perhaps if you're on the old school side of things, which I think is great because I consider myself in that category, uh, when you hear the word or the words Ten Commandments, you might think like I did of Charlton Heston and the epic film from 1956, I think it was, of the same name, the Ten Commandments. And the hair was fantastic, just lots of it from every direction on that man. None of it was actually his, I think. But anyhow, it was not, not only epic um, of a film in and of itself, but it was epic in its running time, 220 minutes long with an intermission in between. And if you find an intermission in any movie that you watch, you know that that's going to be a long film. But speaking of epic, I believe that also the Ten Commandments in and of themselves are epic in every way. Uh, pretty substantial. Um, thou shalt not underestimate the impact on human history of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not underestimate the impact of these commandments on human history. You see, the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20, they really are a pillar of Western civilization. They provide really the foundation for our law and legal system here in Canada, don't you know? Furthermore, not only were the Ten Commandments originally given to God's people verbally, so they actually heard God speak the Ten Commandments to them. He's on top of Mount Sinai. They are below. He, they are hearing God's voice speak these words to him. And then later, afterwards, to, to ensure that they would not forget these Ten Commandments, what did God do? God literally with his finger. Anyone that can write stuff in rock on two tablets with their finger is a God. And that's what God did so they would not forget. So the fact that they heard these words from God audibly, the fact that they, they read these words on two tablets from God's finger himself, these are very important to God, therefore they should be important to God's people, also including us as well. These words were transformative in terms of human history in every way. In fact, let me share with you a quick quote from an Israeli newspaper called the Deseret News, and it speaks to the impact of the Ten Commandments, and it says, the Ten Commandments provided a code of conduct that honored family, protected life, secured property, defined boundaries, enhanced trust, and thereby secured the foundation for cohesive and productive social interaction. In short, the Ten Commandments helped bring order out of chaos. You might be familiar with a, a modern-day philosopher by the name of Jordan Peterson, uh, he's a professor from the U University of Toronto, and he's written a book that's really caught fire called The Twelve Rules for Life. And in fact, a lot of these 12 rules will find scriptural foundations. He may not even know that. Actually, I think he does. I don't think he, he may or may not call himself a Christian, but the point is, his big deal is to bring order out of chaos, because is our world not in some level of chaos right now? And we need order. We need some direction. We need guidance. And that's really what the Ten Commandments were given from God to his people is to bring order out of chaos because they were living chaotic, sinful lives, all right? And so he needed to give them some direction and giving them guidelines that would be most helpful 
for them in how he designed them to live. Now, <coughs> excuse me, there's a lot I could say about the Ten Commandments. And there's a lot of Christians who get confused about the Ten Commandments. Let me explain this. Should we obey the Ten Commandments and see them uh, as something we should obey, or, or is it ancient history? And a lot of Christians would say, no, we don't need to pay any attention to the Ten Commandments. And the reason that they would say that is because they believe it's part of the, the old, um, old covenant, all right? It it's no, no longer applies to Christians. And this old covenant is also known as the Mosaic Covenant, basically given to God's people through Moses, Mosaic Covenant. And in the Old Covenant, which the Ten Commandments form the centerpiece of the Old Covenant, it was by and large conditional, meaning if God's people obeyed God's commands, then things would go well for them. God would bless them. His favor would be upon them. They would defeat their enemies. However, if God's people disobeyed God's clear commands here, disobeyed the Ten Commandments, well, he would punish them. And time and again, actually, all throughout the Old Testament, if they repented, if they admitted their own sins and confessed their sins to God, he would forgive them and his punishment would be relented. But the Old Covenant really had this aspect of conditional things to it. If you obey, God will bless you. If you don't, well, it won't go so well for you. So some Christians say, well, that's Old Covenant. That stuff is history. That's obsolete now. Jesus came along. Jesus, when he came to earth 2,000 years ago, he perfectly obeyed any and all of the Ten Commandments without fail. He did that in our place. Then he died on the cross for our sins. All the times we've broken the Ten Commandments, he did that for us. He paid for those sins already. And then he died on the cross, rose three days later. All right? And so Jesus then started what is known as the New Covenant. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about, symbolizing this new arrangement, this new way of connecting with God and receiving his promises, okay? So therefore, because Jesus came, some Christians, I've encountered this, say, let's just ignore the Old Testament, never preach from the Old Testament, don't listen to the Ten Commandments, we don't need that stuff anymore, it's a waste of time. It's all about Jesus. Now, is this right? Should we just discard the Ten Commandments, discard the Old Covenant? What's the answer? Well, I'll just tell you, it's not, this is not the right way to go. This is not right. Here's why. Did you know that all of the Ten Commandments are affirmed in the New Testament of the Bible? Some argument about commandment number four, which is, you know, all about um, the Sabbath, all right, honoring God's Sabbath and resting on that day, worshiping God on the Sabbath. I believe, though, the Sabbath principle is still in effect for God's people, taking a day a week to rest and to worship God. And so in that case, all of them are affirmed in the New Testament, which means they apply to God's people today under the new covenant, okay? The point is, we should obey them if they're all affirmed. But here's the key difference for God's people, and we talked about this in our community group this morning before the service. We're going through the book of Philippians. It's excellent material. And this was affirmed there and talked about. The key difference between the Old Testament times and the New Testament times, the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant with Jesus, is this, that now this New Covenant with God through faith in Jesus, trusting in Him, and all of God's promises, all of God's blessings, His salvation, His transformation, how do we, re we receive this salvation and getting into heaven instead of hell, how do we receive that? It's, it's no longer based on me obeying the Ten Commandments. It's not based on my spiritual or moral performance. No, it's based 
period alone on the spiritual moral performance of Jesus that he already earned for us through his life, death, and resurrection. That is clear. But instead of God's people back in the day, in Moses' time, they were obeying God to get something from God. They were obeying God to receive his love, receive his blessing, receive his favor. We don't do that anymore. We now obey God. We obey these commands because we've already received his love, received his his acceptance of us through faith in Jesus. Meaning, we now obey the Ten Commandments because we're already loved. That's the motivation. How could I not obey God? How could I not honor him with these commandments and do these things that he's made clear that we should do? He's loved me. He first loved me. How could I not love him back with my faithful obedience? All right, that's pretty deep stuff to begin a message with. That was really, actually, this is still the introduction, so bear with me. This is sort of introducing not just today, but the next three Sundays, okay? All right, and I get it. This is a long intro. Um, Pretty deep stuff. Here's a good way to summarize the Ten Commandments. If you want just the quick, the Coles notes of the Ten Commandments. Are you ready for this? It's simply this. The Ten Commandments are all about how to best love God and best love other people. How to best love God. This is the person who loves you more than any other. This is the person, the only reason you exist or are drawing into oxygen is because God thought of you. He invented you. He put you together. And it's all about how can you love this person who loves you more than any other and also love others best as well. Let me share some other helpful info that explains the purpose of God's law, namely the the Ten Commandments, which form the basis of God's law. From David Guzik, he's a pastor and theologian. He says, from the perspective of the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, we can say that the law of God has three great purposes and uses. Number one, it is a guardrail, keeping humanity on a moral path. Number two, it is a mirror, Anyone look in the mirror this morning? I keep forgetting to look in the mirror, and it backfires a lot. It's not good. I don't know. It's the older I get, the less I want to look at that thing in the, face, or in the, in the mirror. Anyhow, it's, it's a mirror. The Bible is a mirror. The law is a mirror, showing us our moral failure and need for a Savior. Because we can't live perfectly. We need Jesus. And number three, purpose of the law, it is a guide showing us the heart and desire of God for his people. Now, I'm going to run with that idea of a guardrail. You know what I'm talking about with a guardrail? Anyone been to Whistler before? Thanks be to God for those guardrails, because if you go off the side of the road and slip on the ice there, if that guardrail was not there, you would basically just take a deep plunge into the water. I actually witnessed an accident a few weeks ago. I actually saw a guy plunge into the water with a car, but that's another story for another day. There's no guardrail, by the way. That's interesting. So let's run with this idea of a guardrail. And Kevin DeYoung explains it quite nicely, and he says this, God is not trying to crush us with the Ten Commandments, with red tape and regulations. The Ten Commandments are not prison bars, but guardrails. When you drive on a switchback on a mountain pass, do you curse the guardrail? I hate that guardrail. That keeps you from plunging to an untimely death? No. Someone put them there at great expense for our good that we may travel about freely and safely. The Ten Commandments are not instructions on how to get out of Egypt. They are rules for a free people to stay free. Let me emphasize, they are rules for a free people to stay free. Galatians chapter 5 talks about that it is for freedom that Christ set us free. He set us free for freedom. He wants us to experience freedom. 
to be free from the power of sin, the enslaving power of sin and the power of death in our lives and the Ten Commandments for Christians today can provide you with guidelines, guardrails you need that I need so that we don't fall off the edge or go into the ditch to slide off into sin and addiction any longer. How can we live in sin any longer? We've been freed from that stuff. This is what God's commands help us to do and give us clarity on. All right, that was, that was the introduction. Now it's done. That's the preamble. All right, believe it or not, we will cover off the, 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 big, the, the first of the big three commands today. And before I get to first, the first commandment from God, let me show, share with you that there are basically two categories within the, the Ten Commandments. And, and the two categories are this. The first four are God-centric, and the final six are human-centric. The first four begin with God, as it should, just like the Bible begins with God. In the beginning, God created. There he was. And the, the commandments begin with God as well. And so that sort of gives you an overview of what the Ten Commandments are, are about. First four are all about how do, you, uh, how do you encourage and align yourself with God's ways and God's purposes, and how do you align yourself with God's purposes with our human relationships with the final six. First commandment in your notes. Are you ready? Here we go. We're finally getting into really the meat of the material. The first commandment of the Big Ten is simply, you, me, we are to worship God alone. We are to worship God alone. No substitutes. No substitutes. Okay? According to the Bible, there's only one God, and he commands very clearly, very explicitly, that you are to worship him and him alone. It's the best thing for you. It's the best thing for you. Do you believe that? Best thing for you. And we get this from verse 3. It says, you shall have no other gods before, before me. You see what God's saying when he says that? He's basically saying, make me number one in your life. Make me, not you, not another God, not someone else. Make me number one in your life. Let's put this command from God in context. Would you come with me? Travel with me in my time machine to 1200 BC. It's going to be fun. And 1200 BC, the time and the culture that God's people were in, it was very common for you to possess, to have amongst your property, many different little gods or figurines that you would worship periodically. You would not just have one god that you would worship, even if you are Hebrew. You would have many different gods. And the more money you had, probably the more gods that you possessed and worshipped. Because these little guys were quite expensive. They were hand-carved, very often covered with gold and uh, quite expensive metals and, and shiny stuff. And you would worship these gods. And if you didn't have enough money to, to have an assortment of these little mini-gods, you would then go to the various temples in your city where these gods were, and then you could worship the god there. And sometimes you'd, vi you'd visit various temples. Now, why would you worship many gods in 1200 B.C.? You would worship these many gods because you wanted to hedge your bets. You see, to make sure all the bases were covered. Because, well, if God number one, two, and three, are, they're sleeping, maybe they're on vacation, they're having a bad day, a bad week, a bad year, they're not listening to your prayers. Well, if they're not listening to my prayers and they're busy and preoccupied, well, maybe God four, five, six to ten will actually hear my prayers and then bless me and protect me and, and show their favor to me. I want to make sure all everything's covered here. Hedge my bets. Really what this was, was a sort of religious, spiritual life insurance policy so that there would be no stopping of you succeeding in life. 
You see? Does that kind of make sense? That's kind of how it works. Now, and, th- and this is why God says to God's people, you've got to stop that. Stop with the figurine. Stop worshiping multiple gods. They're not gods. And, and he tells them this not only because they're fake, like they're not actually hearing their prayers. They actually can't do anything to bless their lives. These are fake gods. These are substitutes. And, and so there is an aspect. Yes, he's saying it's just a waste of your time and your energy and your money. Don't waste your money on that stuff. They're not real. They can't help you. But it's also because God himself demands their loyalty. He demands your loyalty. He demands my loyalty. He doesn't want to share you with any other so-called gods. This would be like you sharing your kids with other parents. Imagine this. you got a son, and he's got like five dads, all right? And maybe five mothers as well. And that's just crazy, okay? It's not right. He's only got one true mom and one true dad. And these other dads, they're not his real parents. They don't care for him like the the true parents do. It's not helpful for that child to have multiple parents going on and multiple moms. It's just confusing, is it not? It's just very confusing. They got different rules. They got different beliefs. They got different ideals. They got different goals. It's just very confusing. And so is it unhelpful for you or for me or for any Christian to have any other God before you than the one that we should be submitting to and should be trusting in the one real true God of the universe, the God of the Bible. Now, you might think, I know what you're thinking. Some of you are Christians and you're thinking, I got this command down. Get off my back. Would you stop ranting and raving now? Okay, the volume is just a little too, too loud now. Uh, just leave me alone. And, you know, I've got this down. I'm not worshiping Buddha. I'm not worshiping Krishna or a million of the other Hindu gods that are, that are there. I'm not worshiping Allah. All right, so just get off my back. Don't you worry. I got this first commandment down pat. Here's the thing, though. You may have noticed that we find ourselves living in a very religiously pluralistic culture. And it's possible that even as a Christian, you might find yourself inadvertently worshiping other false gods. You might find yourself inadvertently worshiping other false gods. This is very serious. And let me give you a couple of examples. A few years ago, we sent our kids to Taekwondo. We love Taekwondo. It's one of the greatest of the martial arts. And uh, it was very helpful for our kids, a great source of exercise and learning a bunch of new cool words. And uh, so the issue itself was not Taekwondo that I'm going to identify um, but the issue was with this particular club was the instructors uh, required the kids at the very beginning of the Taekwondo session to sit down, knees crossed, and to meditate. And to then empty their minds, take their minds to a place of nothingness. All right? Empty their minds, take it to a place of nothingness before starting their training for Taekwondo. And you see what this is? It's actually a form of Eastern mysticism. And a lot of people, even Christians, they find that this meditation thing from other religions, it's not a big deal. I think it is. It is a big deal. Because when you close your eyes, this is my opinion, when you close your eyes, you try to empty your mind, you try to take your mind to that place of nothingness, it's very possible in that moment to actually open yourself up to some very dark spiritual real forces, namely Satan and his demons. And you don't want to open yourself up if there's a place of nothingness, it's like a vacuum where some of that stuff can come in. And i got to tell you, if you're doing that, you're opening yourself up potentially 
to Satan and his demons, and these are beings that they want, want no good for you. I mean, they want nothing but to tempt you and to deceive you and, and to cause you to sin and, and, and pull you away from God. That's what they want. They want to destroy you at the end of the day. So why open yourself up to that stuff? So here's what we did with our kids. We didn't pull them out of Taekwondo, no. I think they were in it for quite some time. But what we did was we trained our kids and we made it very clear when it comes to their enforced meditation time, you don't meditate. You meditate rather on God. You pray. Pray to Jesus in that moment. You got to do it. You got to pray to Jesus in that moment. Why? Why would we say that? It is crucial to worship God and worship God alone, right? Another example. I'll never forget this one. This is one that really hit me hard. And a friend of mine decided in Toronto to take a team of high school students to do a, a mosque tour. And I think it's the, the most prominent mosque in Toronto. And, and that's fine and good. It's actually good, I think, to visit a mosque, to see how other people, this religion worships, and to experience some of their culture and understand that worldview more clearly. That's good. We don't want to be close to everything. We want to learn about other worldviews and why they believe what they believe. And so that's good. But here's where the problem laid. Well, at one point, the imam took them into the, the place of worship in the center of the building where the carpets are, and he actually taught them how to bow down to Allah and how to do the various hand mo- motions. And, uh, you know, there's, there's symbols behind all these various hand motions of repentance and so on and so forth. And they learned all this, and they physically looked like people who are worshiping Allah. And I heard this. I just about had a heart attack. Like, that's not a good idea for Christians to be worshiping Allah in a mosque. Uh, you know what I'm saying? We are to worship God, the God of the Bible alone. And by the way, I don't think Allah is the God of the Bible. I can talk about that with you later if you like. All right? Allah is not the God of the Bible. It's, it's a false God. Anyways, let me ask you this, though. Are you worshiping God alone in your own life? Or are you hedging your bets in some way? Maybe, maybe you're, you're worshiping some, some Hindu gods or Buddha or some other gods, maybe Allah as well, hedging your bets for like spiritual life insurance to ensure that there's a constant flow of blessing and, and, and success and spiritual protection in your life. That might be happening here somewhere. I don't know. Or how about this? Are you in some way inadvertently worshiping or opening yourself up to other spiritual entities. Um, those spiritual entities can and will do serious damage to your soul. So I think it's, it's worth exploring, worth thinking about, something to consider. We live in a very religiously pluralistic culture, and in some ways that can be helpful because the, 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 the brightness and the glory of Christ is so much more easily seen. If someone is at least open to believing that there is a God, well, chances are good they'll be open to hearing about Christ because you don't have to take them to that place from uh, being, being an atheist to a place of believing in a God. You see what I'm saying? So that can be an advantage to then share the gospel, but let's be sure we're worshiping God and God alone. Worship God and God alone is the best thing for you. Let's move on to commandment, commandment number two in your notes. Simply this, we are not to make, submit to, or serve idols, which are God replacements, for ourselves since our loving God is a jealous, he is jealous for our attention. Since our loving God is jealous for our attention. We get this from verses 4 to 6. It says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third 
and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. Here's some background to this. Back in 1200 B.C., when the Hebrew nation, they were enslaved by the Egyptians, can you imagine, for 400 years, brutally treated by them, well, in that Egyptian culture, you can go back, you can do the archaeology or study the archaeology to this day, you will find figurines of Egyptian gods everywhere. And in, in Egyptian culture, it was unthinkable, unthinkable to, to not make a statue or a figurine of your god. That's just what you did. Make this god visible so you can worship this god more effectively in their minds. And the Hebrew people, they were clearly influenced by this idea that we've got to make a visible figurine of our God. And it's possible that they had these figurines of little Egyptian idols maybe stashed in their stuff as God was speaking. We don't know for sure. And God's saying to them, you've got to blow those things up. Get rid of those idols that are made in the likeness of animals or the sun or created things. Get, blow them up. Get rid of those things. Do not worship them. And he's also saying, by the way, don't make a, a statue of me either because you'll end up worshiping the statue instead of me. But he's saying, don't worship them. Don't serve them. Don't submit your lives to them. Why? Well, here God does not say, well, because they're fake. They're not real. They're lifeless. Worshiping these idols are a waste of time. He doesn't actually say that explicitly. But here God gives us his primary reason for you not making idols or worshiping idols in your life. You ready for this? The primary reason is because he is a jealous God. He is jealous for your attention. He is jealous for you. He doesn't want to share you with anyone else. Just like a lover doesn't want to share their lover with anyone else either. He doesn't want to share you with anyone else. He is jealous for you, jealous for your attention, jealous for your, your loyalty, jealous for your prayers, jealous for you. And why shouldn't God be jealous for you? Think about this. Why shouldn't he be jealous for you? Who made you? Who made you? Who formed you in your mother's womb? Who designed your passions and your personality and the way you talk and your ideas and your talents and your interests? Who right now sustains your body so the blood flows and the thoughts flow and keeps your, your heart pumping and in your mind, your body warm and keeping it all together, all those body systems functioning right now. Who is sustaining you as you are today? Who is that? Only God. God is. And he is your maker, designer, creator, and sustainer. All right, so why shouldn't he be jealous for you? He's the ultimate parent, the ultimate father. He made you. He formed you. No one loves you more than he does. He should be jealous for you. He should be. He has every right to be. All right, there's another angle to this issue of idol worship. Uh, you have heard me speak about this issue of idol worship here before. Perhaps it's been a bit of a fixation. I don't know. But this issue is uh, many people in our culture today, you may have noticed, they do not have a collection of little God figurines in their closets, do they? Unless they're Buddhists, they might have... Uh, a Buddhist figurine, uh, but generally you don't, won't see figurines in their homes. However, idol worship is everywhere. Idol worship is everywhere. It just doesn't happen to look like these little figurines, you see. You see, your idol, your God, is what you 
are giving your life to right now. It's what you look to. It's, to, it's, it's what your primary source of happiness is. It's your primary source of comfort. It's your primary source of satisfaction and fulfillment in your life. Whatever that thing is that you look to to give you those things, that is your idol. That is your God. I've shared this over the years that the idol I struggle with worshiping in God's place, yes, I have worshiped idols. And the one that I struggle with, and one among a few, worshiping in God's place is food. Um, I love food. Bacon is my weakness. I love bacon. I love it too much. I love it. But seriously, food brings me a lot of happiness, a lot of joy, a lot of comfort. And when I feel down and when I feel depressed and unhappy, what do I do? Did this on Friday night. I eat too much. And all it does is distract me from what I really need. What do I really need? What do you really need? What do we really need? It's Jesus. And yet, I eat and I eat and I eat. Yes, it fills the void temporarily. Gives me a little bit of joy until I look at the scale. And that scale, me and the scale have this love-hate relationship. And I hate it when I'm gaining weight and I love it when I'm losing weight. And I look at the scale and I feel terrible if I've been eating too much. In other words, here's what I'm saying. Food cannot give me what only Jesus can give me. Food cannot give you or me long-term, never-ending, soul-satisfying joy, soul-satisfying fulfillment, spiritual satisfaction that will assuage and get rid of my spiritual thirst and satisfy that thirst. Only Jesus, only Jesus, only Jesus can give what I need that my soul requires. That didn't make sense, but anyhow. What about you? What idol do you worship in God's place? What God replacement do you run after to give you happiness and satisfaction and joy in your life? Is it, is it food? Or is it sex? Is it pornography? Is it alcohol? Or is it a good thing? Maybe it's a spouse. Spouses tend to be good things, do they not? Children tend to be good things. Careers tend to, tend to be good things. But are you looking to your spouse as a kind of savior replacement or your child as a savior replacement or your career as your savior replacement maybe your car your home your clothes your stuff your money as saviors to really just save you from an unhappy life and save you from the misery that life is a lot of the time so in the end you see these these idols and these god replacements they simply cannot give you what god alone can give you they cannot give you what your soul really needs you see which is worshiping god alone making him your one and only God. No substitutes. It is the best thing for your spiritual health, for your spiritual well-being, for your mental well-being, for your emotional well-being. You need him, and the good thing is he desires you. He is jealous for you. He loves you. And the passage says his love for you is steady, ongoing, never-ending. It is eternal. So why are you avoiding God? Why are you avoiding him? Why are you sharing your spiritual loyalty with anyone or anything else? Let's move on to the third and final commandment that we're looking at today. And this is from God. Number three in your notes is simply, we are not to take God's name in vain. We're not to take God's name in vain, meaning we use his name carefully, respectfully, thoughtfully, and appropriately. 
We use his name carefully, respectfully, thoughtfully, and appropriately. We get this from, uh, from verse 7, where God tells us, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So there's, it's pretty intense there. Now, very often, the way this command gets applied for Christians is for you to, to no longer say OMG, to not, to not use God or Christ's name as a swear word. In fact, you know, Tammy and I have been involved in starting churches for a few years now, and the whole point of starting these churches was not to steal Christians from other churches. What's the point? Who wants to do that? They often have baggage, by the way, but anyhow. It was actually to win people who are not yet Christians to become Christians. That's the whole point of doing church. That's their mission. And very often, by the grace of God, we would preach the gospel, live out the gospel. These new churches attracted a huge number of, like percentage-wise, of non-Christians. They would hear the gospel, and sure enough, they would respond. They would become Christians. But you see, one of the, one of the things that they asked us about, or that we had to talk to them about carefully, was like, you can't drop, not only should you no longer drop the F-bombs, maybe more importantly, you shouldn't drop the G-bomb or the JC-bombs either, you know? And so that's a process in a, in a matter of education and training. Why do we do that? It's because we should not take the Lord's name in vain, you see. And, and that's very often seen as the primary way that we apply this command. This is true. Um, but think about this. I mean, just one more angle to this. Imagine someone using your name as a curse word or a swear word. You know, you stub your toe, Kurt Kuykendall. Someone cuts you off in traffic, Kurt Kuykendall. Well, how does that make me feel? Not good. You're not respecting me. You're just using me. You know, it's like, how nice is that? I mean, imagine how God feels. Dropping the G-bomb, the JC-bomb, when someone cuts us off in traffic. Well, he doesn't deserve that disrespect. Anyhow, that's not primarily what this command is about. Yes, that is one aspect. There's another aspect here that I want to, to share with you. Uh, taking God's name does apply to our speech. However, if you look at the context, why would God give God's people this command back in 1200 BC. The context, it, this command is primarily designed to prevent God's people from using God's name to back up uh, their dishonesty and their dishonest ways or to justify their sinful behavior. God made me do it. They would often say stuff like that. Or their bad business practice. Uh, imagine using church to help your business move forward and, and make more sales. That's kind of what this is more to do with, and that's happened. I've seen that in church over the years. Uh, a guy comes into the church, and he's looking for more clients to help support the business. That's kind of like using God and Christianity for who? For God? No, for, for actually for you. That's taking God's name in vain. All right? So that's kind of what that's all about. There's a great helpful ESV study Bible note that explains this command. It says, Yahweh, that's a Hebrew name for God, Yahweh is warning Israel against using his name as if it were disconnected from his person, presence, and power. I want to close this message by asking you, have you broken any of these first three commandments? Or have you broken all of the Ten Commandments or an assortment of them? You have, haven't you? I have. Well, if we've broken commandments here, what must we do? Is your relationship with God dependent upon your own moral performance? 
Like, you had a good week of obeying the Ten Commandments. All right, God's happy with me. We're all good. But then the, the week after, you broke all ten. Or maybe you just broke three, broke one. Well, that's not so good. You didn't perform too well. Too bad for you. Are we, are we on the outside with God now? Has He rejected us in that moment of disobedience? The good news is no. In Christ, your relationship with God is based solely upon His good, perfect, moral performance for you in your place. He lived the perfect life in your place as your substitute. Thanks be to God for that. And then Jesus, He not only lived your life perfectly, then He he died your death for you in your place where all of your past, present, and future sins were heaped upon Jesus. And and He was held responsible for those sins and which is why he died on the cross and was punished on the cross to pay for those sins, paid the wages of sin, which is death. And he died for you. Thanks be to God for that. And then three days later, Jesus rose up from the dead. And so basically what I'm saying is your relationship with God through Christ, it's based on what Jesus has done for you out of love. And so when you sin as a Christian, when you sin as a Christian, when you sin as a Christian, which you will do and have done, this is what you got to do. With remorse and with regret and with sorrow, confess your sins to him. Confess your sins to Jesus. Leave those sins at the cross where they were paid for. And in that moment, receive his ongoing grace, his ongoing mercy, his ongoing forgiveness, his ongoing love to cover those sins and turn away from that sin. Don't live in that sin any longer. Don't live in that place of sin and addiction and disobedience any longer. It's clear, God the Holy Spirit, He has given us, the reason He's been placed within you is to give you power and help to no longer sin in those ways anymore. Thanks be to God for that. We don't have to stay in that place of addiction any longer. So there's help and there's ongoing rescue from the Holy Spirit. And so is this what you need to do? Do you need to confess some sins today? to receive his ongoing help, his grace, his mercy, and then his power to no longer break those commandments. The Lord's Supper is our opportunity to do that now. And uh, so with that, let's pray as we invite God to come visit us during this, this time. Thank you, Lord, for your direction, helping us make you our number one, knowing that in worshiping you first and foremost is the best thing for us. It's the most life-giving thing for us. It's the most healthy thing spiritually, emotionally, physically, otherwise for us. So thank you for clarifying what is best for us, how to best love you. Lord, we see your love most beautifully demonstrated in and through and by the cross. We're so grateful. Thank you, Jesus, for living our perfect life, perfectly obedient in our place. Thank you for dying for our sins, and thank you for rising again. We love you. In Christ's name, amen.